Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, Tim Keller in his book on marriage makes a, a very important insight about the nature of a biblical covenant. And he, of course, in that book was commenting on the nature of the marriage covenant because it was a, 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 um, a book on marriage. But I think that it has some important insights about uh, the nature of a biblical covenant period. And we're going to be talking about a biblical covenant this morning. We're going to be talking about the covenant that God made with Noah. And so I wanted to start with this insight Tim Keller says that uh, he once was attending a wedding. And uh, at that wedding, the couple had written their own vows. You ever been to a wedding where where they did that before? The the couple, they didn't use the traditional vows, but they wrote their own vows. And, you know, sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes you can get some pretty wacky stuff. Uh, Well, at this particular wedding, he he makes the comment that the the couple uh, ended up making a, a declaration of how much they loved one another, right? But it, it was merely a declaration of how much they loved one another today, right? On their wedding day, right? I just really love you. It was just the declaration of, of a love today. But Keller, he, he acknowledges that it's, it's really moving and wonderful to hear people declare their, their present love for one another in that way. Uh, but he says, historically, a, a Christian marriage vow is not primarily about declaring a, a present love for today, right? But it's really the point of a, of a marriage ceremony and a marriage vow is to declare, hey, I'm not just going to love you today, but it's about declaring a future love, right? I'm going to love you tomorrow and the next day and the next day, no matter what happens, right? I'm going to love you. That's the power of a, of a covenant. Keller, he, he says this directly. He says, rather in a, a wedding, you stand up, before God, your family, and all the main institutions of society, and you promise to be loving, faithful, and true to the other person in the future, regardless of undulating internal feelings or external circumstances. Right? That's the nature of a, of a biblical covenant, the, the nature of the biblical covenant of marriage. And I, I think he's really onto something here that's, that's really important about what we're going to be discussing today uh, from the, the covenant that God makes with Noah. Uh, from our, our covenant today, I think what we can really marvel at together this morning, what's truly remarkable about this covenant, is, is not just what God is saying to Noah on that day when he made the, the covenant with him, uh, but the truly remarkable thing is that God was making a binding decision that obligated him in, in a relationship with all creation, for all time, tomorrow and and the next day and so on. God was making a covenant and promising a future patience with all of his creation. And this is really important for understanding the Bible and for understanding our world, so we're going to take a closer look at it. Um, This is often referred to, you may hear somebody refer to it sometime as the Noahic Covenant the covenant that God made with Noah. Um, and 
as I said, this covenant is going to describe how God willingly established a covenant of patience, not just with Noah in his day, not just with God's people, but with every living creature for all time as long as the earth shall last. Now, we're going to take a look at this covenant as it unfolds here in this passage. Uh, First, we're going to look at the preface to the covenant, which is the last three verses of chapter 8. And then we're going to look at the stipulations of the covenant, which is chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And then lastly, we're going to look at the covenant itself, which comes in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 9. So we're going to take them in order as it comes here. But before we dive in, let me just kind of step back from this for just a moment. I don't want to assume that everyone knows what a covenant is. You know, we we live in a culture that uh, is really, uh, we, we are just soaked with, with contracts, right? You have to make a, a contract for everything these days, right? A contractual agreement. And I want to make a, a distinction between what you understand from our culture as a contract and what the Bible is talking about when it, when it speaks of a covenant, right? A, a contract often has terms and conditions and, and, you know, if you break those terms and conditions, there may be penalties and that sort of thing. Um, but a covenant is much more than, than just mere terms and conditions, right? Uh, a covenant is this. It's a relationship promise. It's a, a promise of relationship which is made solemn by an oath before God, right? So it's a solemn promise of a relationship uh, before God. So in that definition, we see here different elements, right? When, when you're making a contract with someone, it's almost always uh, just exclusively on the horizontal level between you and another person. But one thing that makes a covenant so special is that it, it, if you're not making that covenant agreement with God himself, like we're seeing in today's passage, a covenant would, would include invoking God in some way. You're bringing God into that into that decision, that relationship, uh, into that relationship. So it's not just horizontal, but it's also vertical. A covenant is vertical between you and God. I think another thing that I would say is that that makes a covenant different from a contract is the emphasis that it places on relationship. So, you know, in a, in a contract, you often are making yourself aware of what are the duties of this contract? What do I have to do to fulfill this contract? It's just about the terms and conditions. Whereas a covenant really does place an emphasis upon the relationship itself. It's a blend of duty. What, do I, what am I supposed to do in this relationship? And love. Right? It's a blend of those two things. And so, you know, before we even get started here, I think we can just step back and marvel at the fact that our God is a covenant-making God. It's amazing that God, the Almighty God, is willing to even enter into a covenant with us. Right? He's willing to, to, in a sense, define his relationship with us uh, around certain terms and conditions and make certain future promises about how he will treat us in the future. So it's remarkable. It's remarkable. And, and if you were to, to just kind of step back from this, as I said, for just a moment and realize that this is a covenant that God makes here in Scripture, but it's just one of many covenants that you could study throughout Scripture. And so to understand 
who God is, you really need to understand this theme of covenant. Right? It is all throughout the scriptures, and it, it really forms the foundation of our hope in him. So, okay, with that said, let's, let's dive in here. The first, uh, first thing that we're going to look at here is the preface. Preface to the covenant. Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. And uh, before we read these, reread these verses together, uh, I want you to remember back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 18 where God tells Noah that he's planning on establishing a covenant with him. Right? So back before God even sent the flood, he said this. He tells Noah, hey, everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. This was part of God's sovereign plan. He was planning to do it even before he sent the flood. And he lets Noah that he's planning on doing it. But I think one thing that's pretty fascinating here with the way that God actually brings about this covenant is that he brings it about, even though it's according to his sovereign plan, he brings it about as part of the intercessory worship of Noah. So he involves Noah in the process of unfolding this covenant. Let me, let me show you what I mean here. Look at verse 20. Noah has just been told to come out of the ark, and um, this is what he does first. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. So the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is he builds an altar and he, he sacrifices some animals. And you say, oh no, he sacrificed some of these animals. Aren't they going to go extinct? Right? Because it's the only animals left on earth. No. If you look back at Genesis chapter 7, God had actually instructed Noah to bring seven of every clean animal. You know, we always, I didn't really emphasize this when I was preaching through this before. But we always hear, you know, that the animals came on the ark two by two. And, you know, that's true in general, but yet God gave a special instruction for Noah to bring extras of the clean animals. I think God was anticipating this moment. Uh, he was providing for Noah to be able to worship him as he came off the ark. And so Noah, he takes some of these clean animals and he sacrifices them to the Lord. And then... Look, look at the next couple of verses here, verses 21 and 22, and it, it says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So the text says here that the Lord smells the pleasing aroma of Noah's worship and that it's at that time when Noah smelled that pleasing aroma that the Lord says in his heart, right? So we're getting a, a glimpse. This is remarkable. We're getting a glimpse into the heart and mind of God in his heavenly throne room as he receives the worship of Noah and he thinks this in his heart. He says, you know what? I'm never going to curse the earth again. I'm never going to strike down every living creature again. As long as the earth remains, I'm never going to do that again. He thinks that in his heart. And I think you should also notice from these verses that the Lord 
says this while acknowledging that nothing has changed in the heart of man. You see in there he says, he acknowledges again that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nothing has changed, right? The flood wiped out uh, the wickedness of, of mankind that had just rushed into utter depravity. But even in the heart of Noah and his sons remains the, the, that root of sin and depravity. Nothing has changed. And yet God says here, I'm never going to do this again. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, God is resolving according to his sovereign plan. And in response to the intercession of his prophet Noah, not to ever again curse the ground or strike down all that is living as long as the earth shall last. And I, I just think it's amazing how God works. I just, I kind of marveled at this this week, you know, just re- remembering that. You know what? Our God is sovereign and in control, and he has a plan. And yet, our God is so amazing that in the unfolding of that plan, he, he works it out in real time with real people, with real intercessory prayer, real worship. He works in and through us to accomplish his plan. He is an amazing God. God had planned this covenant from before the flood, but he brings it about through the intercessory worship of his prophet Noah. He smells the pleasing aroma of that sacrifice, and he says, you know what? I'm never going to do that again as long as the earth shall last. God is an amazing God. I think that what this text is saying is that world history could have looked a lot like the directions on the back of your shampoo bottle. And don't look at me like you've never read the back of your shampoo bottle, right? What's it say? It says, lather, rinse, repeat. Well, guess what? I think apart from God's covenant here, world history could have looked a lot like that. Lather, rinse, repeat. Or, I could change the words there, utter depravity, universal destruction, repeat. Right? Could have just been this huge cycle of, of man growing in wickedness, God wiping out the earth and then needing to start over again. It doesn't unfold that way. God, I think, by his mercy, has made sufficient changes to limit our wickedness, most significantly in limiting our lifespans. We've, we talked about that in a previous sermon. And he, so he's, he has made sufficient changes that he is now ready to covenant with us never to do this kind of worldwide destruction again until the end. And so this covenant that we're going to be studying today is the reason why it it matters for your life because this covenant is the reason why God continues to patiently endure with us to this day. This covenant is the reason why you and I even exist. It's kind of a big deal, don't you think? Kind of a big deal. All right, so that's the preface to all this. God, we, we get to see what goes on in God's heart in response to Noah's worship. Now, secondly, God sort of lays out the stipulations or the terms and conditions here of the covenant. And, and what we see here is God goes over uh, the, the terms and conditions and stipulations of the covenant is we see sort of a modified restart to creation itself. 
Here's what I mean by that. Uh, We've been talking the past couple of weeks about how the flood was really a decreation, right? As the floodwaters came, how how did we see the the heavens and the earth back in Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? As we first uh, behold God's creation, we, we see that it's just a watery nothingness and the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters, right? The flood is God sort of returning the earth back to that state. It's just a watery nothingness. The only thing that exists is, no, is Noah and who, whatever else happens to be on the ark with him. It's a decreation. And then as the waters begin to recede from the earth, and now Noah emerges from the ark with all the living creatures into a, a new reality, a new post-flood earth, God is in a position to sort of reestablish some things, to reaffirm many of the things that he had originally said to Adam. But he makes some important modifications here. You know, there are really a lot of parallels you can draw between Adam and Noah. I think maybe most obviously, you know, there, there are only two men that have ever lived that everyone on earth can legitimately call grandpa. You know that, right? Adam and Grandpa Noah, right? We, all are, we are all related to Adam, and because of the flood, we are all related to Noah directly. Every person on earth, every race, every region on earth descends from this one man, Adam, because of the flood. And so in many ways, Noah is uh, not only sort of restarting the creation here, but, but he is very similar to Adam in many ways. I could draw many parallels. And Noah, as such an important figurehead for humanity, God uh, restates here the blessings and commands that he originally gave to Adam before the fall in Genesis chapter 1. You, you might remember this. Genesis 1, 28 and 29, God said this, and God blessed them and God said to them, this is to, to Adam now, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. That's what God originally said to Adam. Now, we're going to compare that now with, with what God says to Noah as he comes out of the ark. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sound familiar? He's re-repeating the blessings and commands that were given to Adam. And he says it here in verse 1, and then if you skip ahead to verse 7, he says it again. It's sort of his bookends to this, these stipulations of the covenant. Verse 7 says, And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. God restates the blessings and commands to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Secondly, God repeats but modifies his command to have dominion over all the animals. Look at verse 2. God says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea and into your hand they are delivered. Originally, God had said to Adam and Eve, hey, look, subdue the earth and have dominion over everything. 
But I, I believe that, that once sin had entered into the world, this became kind of difficult. And so God here is repeating that, that command to have dominion, but he is sort of modifying it here. He, he says that he uh, is putting in all of the creatures on the earth the fear of man. So God's assisting Noah and his sons in having dominion and subduing the earth. He puts the fear of man in all the creatures. So, uh, you know, the other day we were in New York City and uh, right, at, right at the foot of the World Trade Center and I saw a squirrel over in the grass and I kind of went, you know, I tried to like jokingly just with my boys around get the squirrel to come over. And I was shocked. The squirrel literally came over to me and like was ready to take something out of my hand. That's not normal, right? <laughs> Normally, the creatures of the earth, they see a man and they run in the other direction as quick as they can, right? I think that squirrel had been domesticated a little bit. God did that to assist us in having dominion over the creatures that he has told us to rule over. Thirdly here, uh, God repeats but modifies his provision of food. So originally God uh, said to Adam and Eve, you know, you have all the plants, have a good salad, right? You know, enjoy any fruit of the trees, all those sorts of things. God gives the plants to man for food. But here in verses 3 and 4, Let's just read it. It says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Okay? So God gives us the animals for food. But he puts a couple of really important stipulations on this. Okay, first he says not to eat the flesh with its life. That is, it's blood in it. Uh, God is here setting aside blood as something special that only belongs to him. Uh, blood, because of its close connection with life itself, belongs only to God. And I think God was in this uh, anticipating the important role that blood would play in our atonement. Right By setting it apart as, hey, don't, don't eat that. It sort of sets it apart as something, uh, something other, doesn't it? And, and I think God was anticipating the role that the blood of Jesus would play in our atonement. God says, don't eat the meat with the blood in it. But secondly, God distinguishes between animal life and human life. Animals do not bear the image of God and are given to us as food. But human life, by contrast, is set apart as special because of the image of God in us. And let me tell you, there are quite a few really practical implications to this. Uh, first of all, cannibalism is a hard no, right? I, don't, I probably don't even have to say that, right? But, but let me tell you, if in, a, in a culture that rejects God and embraces something like evolution. What are we but evolved animals, right? Are we really that far away from saying, who's to say that we shouldn't eat the chicken uh, or we shouldn't eat the man, right, if we're all just animals, right? I mean, there's this kind of confusion going on out there, right? God clearly says here that human life is distinct. And on the other hand, he says that we are free to eat animal meat if you so choose, 
You don't have to be a vegetarian, right? Uh, some worldviews, some religions would say that God does not want you to eat meat, right? But we see here from the scriptures that God has given us meat to eat. You don't have to order the Impossible Burger. You guys know what the Impossible Burger is? Look it up, Google it if you don't know. You don't have to order the Impossible Burger. You can get the real one, okay? To kill an animal is not a homicide, right? To kill an animal is not murder. Furthermore, human life is more important than animal life. And that's not to say that we should be cruel to animals. I, 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 don't, I don't think, I think there's a difference between, uh, you know, consuming animals for food and being cruel to animals, right? I'm not advocating, and neither are the scriptures advocating cruelty to animals, but we are free to eat animals as food, right? And human life is more important than animal life. If you dash into a burning building and you only have enough time to save the baby or the cat, you save the baby, right? And you leave the cat, right? That is grounded in the scriptures. Human life is more precious than animal life because of the image of God in us. Human life is on a different plane. Uh, Even in our our sinful, fallen condition, as image bearers, our lives are special and holy. And God says here that there is to be a reckoning for the wanton destruction of the image of God. There's going to be a reckoning for that. People are, are not to be murdered. And I think it's really interesting how God chooses to express this to Noah. He alludes here, I think, to something uh, that goes back to the first murderer in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9. Do you remember when when God comes to Cain after he's murdered his brother Abel? What does he say to Cain? He says, uh, Cain, where is your brother? And Cain responds back to God. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Remember that? Well, here in, as the last stipulation of the covenant here, God makes us our brother's keeper. Uh, in, in my translation, um, it, it kind of obscures that, but I noticed in the New King James that was read just a few moments ago, it's actually translated that way. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man from his fellow man, that literally is from his brother, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. God makes us our brother's keeper. Uh, Before this time, uh, I I don't think it was super clear that we were, uh, in fact, we were not given the authority before this time uh, to deal with something like a murder, but God makes sure to institute here uh, the authority to deal with someone like Cain. We, as the human family, are, are given the task of dealing with the Cains in our midst. It is our duty. Really, this is nothing less than the establishment of human government. This is where we, we find uh, the very roots of, of this idea that uh, Human government is established by God, has received authority from God. In fact, in Romans 13, 1, Paul 
would later write something like this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. He's pointing back to, to Genesis chapter 9 and the Noahic covenant. I really could, could write a whole book about the implications of this as it pertains to human government, but I just thought I would leave you with one balanced observation from a commentator. Uh, he, he wisely wrote these words. He said, there are two errors that people tend to make in regard to human government. One is complete disregard for the state. It's a refusal to, to recognize the authority expressed in a scorn for public leaders and a flaunting of perfectly valid laws. But the other error is to regard the state more highly than we ought, believing that the government will solve all of our problems. Or you, can, you can make an error on either side. You can, you can look down on the government and have anarchy and say, you know, <laughs> forget the government, right? That's not right. We're to submit to the governing authorities. God has given the government authority over us. But on the other hand, right, you don't want to lift up the government to the position that only God belongs in. The government is not God. The government does not determine morality. The government is a servant of God. And we ultimately serve God and God alone. So with all those stipulations laid out, all that's left here is the Noahic covenant itself. And I'm not going to reread it for you this morning in the interest of time. Uh, but basically, the covenant that God makes with Noah in these verses is a promise to never again destroy all things with a flood. And I think if you take that together with what we saw God uh, thinking over in his heart in the preface to the covenant, we, we realize that it's really not just a promise to not flood the earth again, but it also includes a, a promise not to ever curse the ground again or, or in any way to destroy the earth universally again until the end of the age. We can notice here that this covenant is unilateral, universal, and unconditional. What do I mean by unilateral? <laughs> it's, the, it, I mean, it's not bilateral. It, it's not something that God consulted with us on. He just sort of unilaterally, by, on his own, initiated this thing. It comes from him and him alone. In fact, repeatedly throughout uh, these verses, God says, I'm establishing my covenant. It is my covenant. You know, oftentimes when, it come, when we think about human diplomacy and coming up with a, a, a treaty, we don't want to have a unilateral treaty. We want to have a bilateral treaty where everybody has kind of come to the table and compromised and come to a decision for peace or whatever. We're not used to, you know, sort of a one-sided decision that, that is just sort of laid in our laps. That's what God does here. He unilaterally declares this decision that he is going to show us future patience. And really all we can do is kind of with jaws dropped and arms open, just receive it from him. It's unilateral. It's universal. This covenant is between almighty creator God and his creatures the God who just finished wiping out everybody and everything 
is now making this covenant with every living creature on earth. It touches everyone. It touches everything. It's a universal covenant. And then thirdly, it is unconditional. God says that this covenant is not just for Noah's generation, but it's for all future generations as well. He calls it an everlasting covenant as long as the earth shall last. This covenant is to be in place. God doesn't say, I I won't destroy the earth again uh, unless you do that one thing or unless you get above a certain threshold, then I might consider it. You know, there's not those kinds of terms and conditions to this thing. It's unconditional in the sense that, that it is not dependent upon us doing or not doing something. God has established it to last until the end. And so we can note here through these verses the repetition of God saying, never again, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God repeats never again at least three times throughout that passage. You know, when you get married, people always tell you to never say always or never. Did you ever receive that advice? You know, when you're in, with your spouse, don't ever say never or always, right? Why? Because we're not that consistent. God is the only one who can say, hey, I'm never going to do that again. And you know that you know that you know he is never going to do it again. It's a, it's a promise that you can be assured of that he will stick to it. God is consistent As I said earlier, this covenant is the reason why God continues to patiently endure with us to this day. You know, we look out on on the world and we see a world of evil and we often, uh, we even will call that the problem of evil. There's a problem of evil because if God is good, why does he allow evil to flourish? If there's a God of of goodness and love and justice out there, why doesn't he step in and, and and end this stuff, right? And sometimes we even shake our fists at God about that. I think the story of Noah and the flood tells us, hey, we've been there and done that as a human race, right? If God's going to step in and deal with the evil in our world, what's it going to look like? It's going to look like, like the flood, it's going to look like that lather, rinse, repeat that we talked about earlier. You don't want that. Trust me, it is better. It is better that God has given us the Noahic covenant. It's better that he has promised to be patient with us. This covenant creates the framework. It creates the possibility for God to sort of unfold the rest of his plan of redemption. Right? I was thinking of, you know, what kind of an analogy I could use to help explain that concept to you. I mean, have you ever seen a trellis upon which a a vine can grow, right? The Noahic covenant is like the trellis that allows the vine of God's redemptive plan to unfold. Because without the trellis, without God making this decision, hey, I'm never going to wipe you out again, it allows time and it allows patience and space for God to actually bring Christ into the world. It allows room for 
for us to be saved and not just crushed. One book I was reading used a different analogy. They, they said that the Noahic Covenant was sort of like a firm stage of history where God can work out his plan for rescuing his fallen world. It's, I mean, imagine this platform here, this, this stage up here that as sort of, if, if it wasn't here, right, I would, I would, actually there's the old baptistry underneath, right underneath me right here, I believe. I would just come plummeting right through. But the Noahic Covenant gives you some firm ground to stand upon so that God can then, he can call a man like Abraham and say, go, leave, leave your home, leave your country and go to the place I tell, tell you. And out of Abraham, he could raise up a nation out of which he could one day send his son into the world and one day for his son to live a righteous life and to be betrayed by his friend and to be nailed to a cross and to shed his blood for our sins and to be buried in the tomb and then to rise again in victory over sin, death, and unbelief and to be raised up to the right hand of God the Father for all time, right? What allowed all that to happen? It was God's promise of future patience with us. God overlooked our sin in order that he might be faithful to the promise that he had made, in order that he might one day send his son into the world and that he might seek and save those who are lost. It all begins here. The story of Noah. And God, he seals this promise with a, a beautiful sign, a, a rainbow. In fact, there's, there's really no word, Hebrew word for rainbow. Call it a, a bow in the clouds. And that word bow is like an archer's bow. That's usually how the word is used. So it's like an archer's bow in the clouds, made of beautiful colors as a sign of God's promise not to destroy us. I like how one scholar by the name of Warren Austin Gage put it. He said this, The bow is a weapon of war, an emblem of wrath, but God will now set it in the heavens as a token of grace. The Lord who makes his bow of wrath into a seven-colored arch of beauty to ornament the heavens is the one who will finally command the nations to beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. For the Prince of Peace takes pleasure in mercy and the righteous judge delights in grace. It's pictured there in the beautiful rainbow that God has made. It's God's rainbow. One other commentator I read made the observation that this bow is always pointed up into the heavens, never down on the earth, right? It arches this way, pointing up, away from us, sign of peace. And so just in, in, in conclusion here this, this morning, uh, I think there... <laughs> There's multitudinous things, ways we could apply this, and I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to, to do that in your life. Uh, but if I could ask you to walk away with one thing, I think I would ask you to give thanks this week for God's patience. We're entering into a season of thanksgiving. Thank God for his patience. 
Thank God that he waited for you. I I think as I have pondered that this week, uh, not only have I wanted to give thanks to God for his patience, but I have wanted to be patient as he is patient. I kind of have a calm, cool exterior, but underneath the calm, cool exterior is an anxious, impatient man. And I, I am in awe of God's patience. I probably, like you, long for the fruits of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. God can fill me with his Holy Spirit and give me his patience along with the the rest of the fruits of the Spirit. Lord, let us be patient as you are patient, patient with people who sin against me, patient with people who do not yet believe in you, patient and hopeful, praying that as God continues to have patience, God continues to tarry, that he will at last open eyes to the incredible offer of salvation, right? Aren't we so glad that God is waiting, that he's being patient, that we might have time to share the gospel with our loved ones, that there's still time for those we know and love to repent and to turn to Jesus? Don't grow impatient. Don't grow impatient with those who don't yet believe. Love them, pray for them, reach out to them, be patient and hopeful Don't give up. God has not given up on them. And then thirdly and finally, I I would just ask as a, just as a call to repentance, is God patiently waiting for you? May God's patience and kindness lead you to repentance You know, we've talked about God's patience being sort of like a stage or a platform upon which the drama of redemption is being played out. That drama of redemption is not finished. God is still working out this drama of redemption in our midst, in our church, in our community. And we long to see that drama of redemption played out again and again and again. And so we invite you. Is God patiently waiting for you? Yes, he is. And won't you come to him today? Jesus is waiting for you with open arms. Let me pray for you to that end.